don't ever doubt this business about being the salt of the whole earth, the light of the whole world. We listen to the wrong voice when we sort of shuffle our feet and go, oh, shucks, I, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. Well, yeah, you are nobody. But nobodies are precisely who God loves to use. So don't ever underestimate what it is God wants to do in and through you. That's what he's telling this, this group. There were that, that, that circle of 12 followers that he had drawn to himself, but a much larger crowd had assembled. And, and here Jesus is, is telling them that even though you grew up on the backside of nowhere, God has plans for you that you can't imagine. So what, is it, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, his first point tells us, that, uh, tells us what a disciple looks like. I mean, he, he describes this person who doesn't do certain things and does do other things, but not because he's keeping some external uh, rules and regulations, but because it's the overflow of a transformed heart that is pure before a holy God. He says, what does a disciple look like? But then he said, well, well what motivates a disciple? Well, he's motivated by an unswerving loyalty and an uncompromising trust. Well, now he's going to bring us to the final point of the message, and, the, and I, would, I would outline it this way. So what does the world see when they see an authentic disciple? What do we look like to them? See, the danger of the Sermon on the Mount is we look at the challenge of this life that he describes, and our, our, our first response probably is, Listen, the only way I could even begin to pull that off is if I go off somewhere and maybe live in a monastery. I mean, I've got to cut myself off because the world is, is full of, uh, of enemies and opponents. It's full of, of temptations and, and depravities, and it's, and it's full of people who just irritate the heck out of me. You know, if I'm really going really to live a, a, a life where I'm dedicated to the Word of God and, and I'm just devoted to, to, to the presence of the Spirit, I, I've got I've to cut myself off. I've got to get away. We tried that. We've tried it for almost 2,000 years. It's called the monastic movement. Only what we've discovered is while that kind of moment is a healthy way to take a retreat. I mean, Jesus went off by himself. He went off and prayed overnight or, or even a couple of days at a time. I mean, that kind of isolation is, is appropriate for a, a, a brief window. But it is not how we were meant to live. We were meant to be engaged in the world around us. We're not, we're not of the world, but we are in the world. And we've talked about how light must clash with darkness. Salt only prevents decay when it's pressed into the, 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 the thing that's being decayed. And so Jesus is going to take us through this final point. What does the world see? Because what we need to recognize as we come to the conclusion of this, this message is he wants us to understand that this life of discipleship that he's calling us to 
It's not lived in isolation and loneliness. It is lived in relationship, in community, in community with other people who are living this life, but also uh, in connection with, with the world where we are representing the kingdom. The best possibility for our success is not monasticism, but it is to, uh, to, to examine the closing verses of this sermon and, and let Jesus call us uh, to the best ways that we can relate to other people, even though we live in an imperfect and damaged world. Disciples never find kingdom perfection in isolation, but rather because we have figured out how to properly administer our relationships. One writer put it this way, and it sort of resonated with me. He says, most of us are umpires at heart. We like to call balls and strikes on everybody else. Well, we have finished chapter 5 and chapter 6, so today let's look at chapter 7. And we'll see this third point, and he'll, and Jesus will lead us into uh, an invitation. On your outline, I've called this a disciple's public persona. And by that, I mean this is what a disciple looks like. This is what the world is, is supposed to see. In, in, the first, uh, in, in the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 6, he's going he's gonna to say that we're, we are to have a blameless posture toward other people. Chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. All right, now the first thing you're going to think of is, okay, I was following you right up to verse 6, and I have no idea what that's about. Let me show you. He starts by essentially, as he begins to talk to us about our relationships, he's talked about our relationship uh, to the Father, you know, the spiritual side. But now he's going to finish by talking about how we relate to other people. And simply put, the, the, the first part of this section of chapter 7, uh, the message is simply this, don't be judgmental. I mean, that's the plain meaning here. But here's where we get mixed up. We can't understand this to mean that we are to never, under any circumstances, ever express or form an opinion concerning others. If that were the case, then this instruction would conflict with numerous biblical calls to discernment and evaluation, and it would conflict with the very example of Jesus and the apostles who regularly exposed and reproved error and evil. The reference here, what, what does he mean? Don't be judgmental. The reference here, frankly, is to the sadly common practice of officiously and presumptively undertaking to pass judgment upon others, a judgment that is often unfounded, unjust, and unkind. What Jesus is speaking about here, and this is where we need to, to, to land, when he says don't be judgmental, He's not talking about when and how it's appropriate to evaluate the, the activities and the behaviors of other people. 
especially for pastors, one of the, one of the roles that, that we've been given responsibility for is to correct, reprove, rebuke, to call out sin. You can't do that without a discerning judgment. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here, he's not talking about how we monitor the behavior of other people. Here, he's not dealing with other people's sins. He's talking about our attitude. If a Christian's attitude is right, then provision is made in Matthew chapter 18, the chapter that we refer to as the the chapter for instructing us about church discipline. If your heart is right, if your attitude is right, Matthew 18 tells us how to approach a brother and the process to go through to call him out and to attempt to bring him back home where it's safe. What Jesus is talking about here is the self-appointed, self-righteous attitude that, that chooses to take it upon themselves to correct everybody else in the world. I had somebody years ago in a different church come to me and say, Pastor, you need to come talk to my neighbor. Okay, why? And I'm thinking, you know, people will say that a lot when, when, when somebody needs to, to be witnessed to. Pastor, you need to come talk to this person. They said, we are having problems. I cannot get them to behave properly. You need to come talk to them. Okay, remind me, are they a member of my church? No, then I can't help you. It is not my job to correct everybody in the world. In fact, the people that have that job, they're all on social media. And they are free in their advice telling everybody else why what they're doing is not correct. Let me tell you something. To be the judge of the world is to have a heavy weight on your shoulders. That's not our job. That's not the role that we're called to play. One writer put it this way. Jesus said, says regarding judging, don't. The average Christian is the most penetratingly critical individual. Criticism is a part of the ordinary faculty of man, but in the spiritual domain, nothing is accomplished by criticism. The Holy Spirit is the only one in the true position to criticize. He alone is able to show what is wrong without hurting and wounding. It is impossible to enter into communion with God when you are in a critical temper. It makes you hard and vindictive and cruel and leaves you with the flattering unction that you are a superior person. Do you see what Jesus is concerned about here? He's been describing this disciple life. And he's going to come to this issue of judging because he wants us to understand that a judgmental attitude, rather than making us superior to the people we look down on, in fact, a judgmental attitude moves us away from fellowship with God because it betrays the fact that we have an unbroken spirit. Where did Jesus say the source of happiness was? In correcting everybody else in the world? No, to be poor in spirit, to understand in humility that that, that you're probably the person who needs correction the most. God, God is looking at our hearts, and he wants us to act in such a way 
that we refuse to stand. I mean, look at what Jesus says here. He says, the measure, friend, the way you judge, you will be judged. By the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Who in their right mind wants to stand before God and say, God, judge me exactly the way I've judged everybody else? Ooh. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the problem. In this business of right relationships with other people, he's going to make a leap that in the English is not readily obvious here. All right, these first five verses, you know, he says, listen, before you, before you take it on yourself to, to, to point out the flaw in somebody else, why don't you go before your father? Remember about prayer? We talked about that's a, a secret thing. How about you go before your father in secret and you let him deal with the flaws that you have, which may be more obvious to everybody that's looking than the one that you're trying to correct in your, in your brother. Let's take care of the log, and then you might be in an attitude, of a mind that allows you to go and approach somebody about the speck. But then there's this strange verse, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, if the first five verses, he's talking about how we're not to be hard toward people. In verse 6, I believe he's giving us instruction about, about how to not be too soft toward other people. Think about it this way. Um, when you are speaking about spiritual things, there are people who, who are anxious to hear. Man, you, you bring up something and they, they start asking questions. They want to know about it. You mention your church and they go, you know, I might like to go to church with you sometime. Or you invite them to church and they go, yeah, I, I think that's something I might like to try. But there are also other people, this is much less frequent, I think, but there are other people who, if you bring up spiritual things, they immediately become hostile, they ridicule and mock, uh, they, they, they will, maybe they will take the, name, the Lord's name in vain simply for the shock value of, of offending you. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is a discernment that comes in our relationship with other people. We need to discern the issues that the Spirit wants to deal with in our lives before we take it upon ourselves to become to, to approach somebody else about issues in their lives. But at the other end of the spectrum, um, we have to learn how to discern whether presenting to others those things that are holy will elicit nothing but abuse and maybe even profanity. In those instances, restraint is required. I mean, hear what Jesus is saying. Don't take the precious gospel and hand it to a pig because pigs don't appreciate pearls. In fact, they will just trample it in the mud. Now, you say, well, this is, this is really strange. Think about it this way. 
In the first six verses, Jesus begins this process of talking about what the world should see in an authentic disciple. He's going to give us five verses that tell us how to restrain our tendency to judgmentalism. He's going to give us one verse that tell us how to restrain our, our uh, aggressive presentation of the gospel. That ratio is pretty accurate because for every one person that may need to be slightly restrained, certainly there are five that need to be less judgmental. The verses here, the, the, the theme that ties the verses all together is simply um, that we have to have a discerning spirit in relationship with other people, and we have to move into those relationships with a real godly wisdom. Whether it's for correction or for witness, um, we can't witness in an overzealous and undiscerning way to somebody that will abuse and ridicule the precious gospel. By the same token, um, we have to recognize where the danger lies if we, uh, if we devolve ourselves into becoming uh, judgmental people. A true and authentic disciple um, appears to the world as a person who is appropriately restrained and always correct in the way that, that, that they speak and deal with other people. Now in verse 7, he's going to take us to the matter of prayer. If we need a blameless posture towards others, now he's going to say we have to have a believing persistence towards God. Uh, look, at, look at verses 7 through 11. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or what person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's interesting uh, to, to ponder, why is Jesus now, in this part of the sermon, bringing up this encouragement to persistent prayer? I mean, why now? We just saw... In, in the previous sections of the sermon, uh, a, a fairly extensive explanation about prayer, including the giving of a model uh, of how to pray. What, why would he circle back around to talk about prayer yet again in chapter 7? Well, I think it's because Jesus understood the difficult nature and the extensive implications uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. He had already taught us how to pray, but now he's going to say, but in, 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 in light of what's necessary for you to be in relationship with the people around you, you need to make it a habit uh, to have a kind of untiring perseverance in the task of prayer. He put this call to prayer in the middle of his discussion about relationships. That's an indication that, that our relationships with the people around us involve at some level, uh, always involve some level of spiritual warfare. Christ is not suggesting that we just turn over a new leaf and we just be better with people. I mean, the objection, when I talk about, about how we're to relate to other people, the objection is always the same. But pastor, you have no idea how irritating this person is. 
Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, people are a mess. In fact, some of them are just downright jerks. But Paul, in his writings, comes back around to this idea, and he reminds us that if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be jerks right there with him. So what's the, so, so what's the key here? Jesus says, I want you to control your attitude so that you're not judgmental. But I want you to be discerning so that you don't just throw out precious things to people who are going to reject them and abuse them. How do we know how to do those things? Because we must be a people of persevering prayer. Prayer is not just our laundry list of things that God needs to handle. It is the battle that we engage in specifically in the realm of our relationships with other people. Jesus is pointing us to the Father as a resource to battle the natural tendencies that we have to either be too hard or too soft with people. In other words, if you're tempted to criticize a brother, you need to stop and pray about it. By the same, by the same token, if you need spiritual discernment and witnessing, you need to stop and ask God about it. Prayer is not just for my Bible reading time in the morning. It is a constant conversation that, that interacts with God all through my day as I'm facing real-world situations that involve actual people, some of whom I like less than others. He says in verse 11, he uses this... Uh, Verse 8 just tells us that, that this kind of perseverance will always, be, uh, will always be received well. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. In other words, when you ask God for guidance and direction, guess what God gives you? Guidance and direction. Well, I prayed the other day, and I didn't get anything. Okay, let me, let me take a side note. Jesus is not going to answer that issue, but let me just... Let me just handle that for a minute. Here's the problem. We are a busy people, and we live in a world where we are constantly assaulted by information and noise. That means that in order to hear God speak by His Spirit, we have to develop the discipline to listen well. When God says, you ask me for guidance, I'm going to give you guidance. That means God is going to keep his word. So when you pray for guidance and nothing comes, you have to stop and go, man, I, 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 I've got to get somewhere where I can hear. I, I, my sweet mother, she, um, she's deaf in one ear. She was a teenager. She lit a firecracker and threw it back to, to throw it, and it exploded right here in her ear. So she's deaf in one ear. And, uh, and when we talk, it wears me out. Because I have to talk like this. Because she doesn't hear me well. I have, to, I, I, I have to talk louder, especially if there's any ambient noise. Now, if we can be in a place where it's quiet, then I don't have to shout because she's more likely to be able to hear me when there's not a lot of noise around. You know what the enemy has done to us in, in our modern generation? He has surrounded us by nonstop noise. 
How many of you go home to an empty house and the first thing you do is flip on the television? Not because there's something you want to watch, but because you want the noise. We have literally been trained to have an aversion to quiet, which is why I've never stopped calling our devotional time our quiet time because we've got to get it into the discipline of our life to have quiet time because that's how we hear. That's how we get away from the noise. Jesus has said, ask and you'll receive. Knock, it'll be open to you. But we've got to be in a position where we can hear that guidance that is given to us. In verse 11, oh, in verse 9 and 10, he, he, he talks about earthly fathers. He said, you know, when your son asked you for a loaf of bread, you don't, you don't give him a rock. If he, if he needs a fish, you don't give him a snake. In other words, you, you're nothing to write home about as a parent. But you even know how to give good things to your children. Many of us in this room to our grandchildren how much more then is the good father not only capable but absolutely willing to give to us the things that we need? The good gifts of earthly fathers are compared to the greater gift of the heavenly father, which is the, the, the greater gift is the heavenly resources necessary to live the life of righteousness that Jesus says, remember, he says it has to exceed the Pharisees, it has to exceed the law, it has to be a righteousness that exceeds the culture, it has to be a righteousness that reflects the Father. It would be, it would be absolutely unfair for God to say, here's the standard, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, that's the standard, but you got to do it on your own. That would be crazy. But instead, what's actually happened is Jesus as an authentic disciple, disciple is, is having his heart transformed. He's becoming pure. He's reflecting holiness. And as a result, not because he's better at keeping the rules and regulations, but as a result of that transforming heart, his behavior will exceed the law. His behavior will exceed the behavior of the culture. And he'll begin to look like a son of God. Remember, a son shares characteristics with the father. And so he says, ask for that. You know, one of the standard prayers that, we ought, that we've got to learn how to pray. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me be like Jesus to this person. Now, does that mean Jesus was always gentle Jesus, meek and mild? There's a time and a place to dig in your heels and go nose to nose. But it needs to be a righteous indignation that flows out of something that would upset Jesus. Most of what we refer to as righteous indignation is really just unspiritual irritability. Irritability is not a fruit of the Spirit. But there is a time where we, to be, to treat somebody like Jesus would treat them, would be to confront self-righteousness and to speak truth. There's a key. I, I, I teach this to, to our young pastors. It's important to know when it's appropriate to come up and put your arm on somebody's shoulder and say, listen, I'm going to walk with you. We can do this. You got this. You can live up to this moment. 
But it's also important at some point to come along and say, I'm going to kick you in the pants because you know better than this. You need to get on with things. There's an art. There's a discernment to knowing when there's a gentle encouragement, uh, a gentle nudge in the right direction, and when there's a confrontation and a kick in the pants. That's what this whole chapter is about. He wants us to to deal with the people around us in ways that never compromise the reputation of the kingdom, but actually advance the cause of Christ. But he doesn't ask us to just become super good at all interpersonal relationships. He invites us to pray about these things. God never requires a disciple lifestyle that we cannot achieve in his power and presence. I read of one little four-year-old boy who saw a picture of a praying Jesus and asked just what Jesus was doing. His mother said, well, Jesus is praying. And the four-year-old said, who's he praying to? Mama said, to God. And the little boy said, but Jesus is God. It goes along with a quote that comes from St. Cyprian, one of the church fathers, who said, if Jesus pray, if, if he who pray, if, let me translate it from the Greek real quickly. St. Cyprian said, if he prayed who was without sin, how much more it becomes a sinner like us to pray. You ever thought about bringing God into the mix of the way you interact with the people around you? You ever thought about praying while you're walking from your car to the automatic door into the grocery store? Lord, I don't expect to see anybody here. I don't expect to have any conversations. I doubt that anything will happen. But just so that I'm in the right place, would you walk with me as I walk through the grocery store? Don't let me miss an opportunity where I should speak. Don't let me say a word where I shouldn't speak. What if we literally invited God into the mundane events of our day? Because most of us admit it. Most of us live under the illusion that we can do normal life on our own. We just need God to come in for the big stuff. The fact of the matter is, God's not interested in our big stuff just doing that. He's interested in a relationship of walking through the day of us living the life, the crucified life of Christ in everywhere we go, in everything that we do. If you went to the grocery store and you didn't talk to anybody and you walked in, you got your stuff and you checked out and you left and you didn't have any conversations, would that be a wasted prayer? No, it wouldn't be a wasted prayer because it would be one more uh, way to strengthen your walk with Jesus. Hmm. Well, blameless, blameless posture toward others, believing persistence toward God, but then a balanced principle toward self. This is, an, this is an important verse, and you'll recognize it. Verse 12, chapter 7, it says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, we typically refer to this as the golden rule. What Jesus has just done is absolutely stunning. Because with his reference here to the law and the prophets, verse 12 of chapter 7 ties us back to chapter 5, verse 17. Let me reread that for you. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Remember, he didn't set the law aside. He said, I'm going to take it to a new level. 
We're going to move past external rules and regulations to the issue of your heart. Well, now, at, 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 in verse 12 of, of, of chapter 7, Jesus now takes everything that was in the law, those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, He's going to take everything that that the Jews were handed to know how to live life, and he's going to bring it into one singular statement. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. To accomplish chapter 5, verse 20, to fulfill the law and the prophets, you live by chapter 7, verse 12. You're not concerned that people don't always respond to you properly. You're concerned only with your practice towards them. Now, there's a negative version of this rule that shows up in almost every philosophical school in history. We call it the silver rule. Let me read you some some examples. Uh, The Chinese philosopher Confucius said, do not unto others that which you would not, they should do unto you. Socrates said, what you are angry at when inflicted on you by others, this do not do to others. A Jewish rabbi named Tobit said, what thou hatest, do to no one. Another rabbi, Hillel, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. Uh, A Roman philosopher, Seneca, said that the best way... uh, The best way to confer a benefit is to give as we should wish to receive. Now, here's the difference. The silver rule is in the negative. The silver rule says, if you don't want it done to you, don't do it to somebody else. For example, if you don't want somebody to rob you, don't go rob other people. If you don't want people to disrespect you, don't disrespect other people. But the problem is the silver rule is because it's in the negative, you can actually satisfy the silver rule by not doing anything at all. Jesus doesn't give us that option. The golden rule is foundationally different from every other philosophy because Jesus says, I want you to be proactive. The things that you do like, I want you to go do that to them. Do you like to be appreciated? Then go appreciate other people. Do you like to be loved? Then go love other people. Do you like it when people serve you? Then go serve other people. The golden rule cannot be lived out in isolation. The silver rule, hey, live and let live. I'll just mind my business and you mind your business. That's every philosophy in human history. Only Jesus pushes us out into the reality of other people's lives and says, be proactive to do in their life what you would like them to do in your life. Matthew Broadus is one of the great commentators on, on, on Matthew. His commentary is probably close to 100 years old. He says this about verse 12. Our Lord now gives one single precept for the regulation of our conduct, a simple working rule, which is not merely a summary statement of all that he has been teaching on uh, in this discourse, but is expressly declared to cover the entire ground of what is required by the law and the prophets, the whole of the then existing revelation. In other words, pastor, give me one verse to memorize so I know how to live the Christian life. Matthew seven twelve. Your mama taught you the golden rule. But Jesus presents it as the means by which we make an impact 
the way that we are salt and light. What, you, what would you like done to you? What would you really like? Then do that to others. Duplicate the quality and the quantity of those things that you find satisfaction in. This behavior summarizes all of the Old Testament regulations. It's a quick and easy way uh, to test your behavior and make sure that you are living like a disciple. All right. That's the third point. Now Jesus is going to take us to what I would call the invitation. The invitation, the appeal, where he comes to, to really offer to the crowd the opportunity to accept the, uh, the call to step into this kind of life that he's been portraying here. The invitation portion of the Sermon on the Mount is a declaration. He's asking for a declaration of decision, a call for response, an appeal to commitment. This conclusion is the conclusion of the sermon, but it's also a challenge concerning what the conclusion, how that should play out in the response of the listeners. He's going to give us three parables here, and these parables will, will, um, will really declare what's at stake. The first, uh, the first section I've called parables of choice. There are two parables here. First, the parable of two gates, and then we'll see the parable of two trees. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's interesting. He says, enter. I mean, it's, it's a command. It's a demand for decision. Each gate, the, the, the parable here, pictures two gates, and as you pass through the gate, on the other side of, of each gate, there's a pathway. One of the paths is broad and flat and easy. The other path is much more challenging. It has some ups and downs, some twists and turns. It's narrower. It's not, uh, it's not, um, it's not useful for large groups who just want to uh, flow downstream of culture in the same direction. Two paths. They lead to two distinctive destinations. The destinations seem to be distant, quite a ways from the gate, but here's the catch. The gates lead to two paths. The two paths lead to two destinations. But no matter how far away the destinations are, the die is cast once you decide which gate to enter. See, we need to understand this. Because our culture has this weird idea that you can just live however you want to and that one of these days when you need to, you know, get your ticket punched right under the wire, you know, the, the angel of death is coming for you, you're laying on that hospital bed, somebody's going to show up and you're going to get things right with Jesus and you're going to get into heaven at the last minute. Here's what Jesus wants us to understand. We have this idea that basically we're on one path and the gate, the decision is right at the end. And we just, we just have a, a step from the gate into one of two destinations. That's not the picture here. The picture is here's two gates and you choose today which gate you're going to go in. And once you make that choice, you're on that path. 
Say, well, pastor, you never heard of deathbed conversions? Yes, I have. But let me tell you something about deathbed conversions. They are highly overrated in our expectation. My experience as a pastor is that a life lived in rebellion to Jesus Christ results in a deathbed rejection of Jesus way more than it results in a deathbed conversion. Why? Because they've been on the path. At some point in life, every man, woman, or child is is presented with this choice. There are two gates. You can choose either gate. You look over the gates and you see, and there's there's a more difficult path, and there's a smoother, easier path. They both lead to destinations. You can't quite see the destination from the gate. But once you enter the gate, you're on the path to that destination. They don't run parallel. We don't get to bounce back and forth. They run in opposite directions. Jesus says there's a decision that's to be made here. I've presented to you the kind of life that, that, that the Father is calling you to. Every man, however, faces a crossroads at some point in his life. And despite the appearances, the decision of the gate determines the destiny of the arrival. He says, well, there's also a parable of two trees. In verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, in considering the Sermon on the Mount, you have to contrast Jesus with the other itinerant teachers that were probably abroad in Judea in those days. Just like our generation, every philosophical salesman hawks a different worldview or a presuppositional paradigm. And when choosing which message to follow, Jesus says you need to study the lives and the values of the messenger. The reason for that is the nature of the message is always eventually played out in the life of the one who offers the message. Every convert eventually reflects the message that he accepts. So he's suggesting here, just like a good tree can only bear good fruit and a bad tree can only bear bad fruit, hear the Sermon on the Mount, study the life of Jesus, Decide which standard you will adopt because everything in your life is bound up in that decision. When, remember when uh, Andrew and John were with John the Baptist and they, and, and John identified Jesus, there's the lamb, the one I've been telling you about. He's come to take away the sins of the world. And they start following him from a distance. You remember this scene? And Jesus turns to them and he says, uh, can I help you boys? 
And they clearly weren't prepared for a conversation because they say, they go, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, we, we were wondering where you're staying. What a stupid remark. They weren't wondering where he was staying. They were just captivated by him because they had heard about the Messiah their whole lives. And here's John saying, that's him, that's the one. And they're following him and he goes, um, can I help you? Uh, we were just wondering where you were staying. And what did Jesus say? Come and see. You see, Jesus, unlike false teachers, he never says, do what I say, not what I do. He never says, ignore the man behind the curtain, just follow my instructions. He says, you come look me up and down, top to bottom. You watch me live this life. And then you decide if this is the life that you want to live. You see, what Jesus is offering is not a new religion. He's offering new life. And it's his crucified life in us. Come and see. Become a good tree because you will then produce good fruit. But then Jesus makes an observation that's going to cut to the heart of the matter. He says, not everyone, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Lord, it's a word used as a title that admits that allegiance is owed. In other words, you don't call somebody a Lord unless you are acknowledging that they have some sort of right to be over you. To repeat it, to say, Lord, Lord, is to place a double emphasis on that admission. Lord, Lord, you have the right to be over my life. But here's what Jesus wants us to understand, and this is critical for Christians in every generation. To repeat the address of Lord, Lord is no substitute for actual obedience. Dedication to the kingdom, like he describes in Matthew 5-7, through requires more than lip service, more than casual acceptance, more than oral identification. To call Jesus Lord means to strive to meet the standard of this sermon. His appeal is for us to live in such a manner that our lives themselves cry out, Lord, Lord. Our lifestyle so acknowledges him that our tongues merely confirm the fact. You know, one of the most outrageous things that can happen, uh, we're shocked. I remember uh, all the way back when I was in seminary, uh, in, in, I believe it was in 1984, when Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, was assassinated, and it turns out that she was assassinated by one of her own personal bodyguards. It's an amazing thing when somebody gets so close and then becomes a traitor. So isn't that exactly what Judas Iscariot did? Yeah, the difference is Jesus wasn't caught off guard by that. He knew the plan. And I'll tell you, the difference between Indira Gandhi in 1984 and Jesus is that Jesus is never going to be fooled by a disciple's charade. Lord, Lord, I've done all kinds of church stuff. And he says, I, I, I don't know you. 
I've never known you. You know, he tells us in the book of John, he says the sheep know the shepherd's voice. That's pretty powerful. But here he's saying the shepherd never mistakes his sheep from somebody else's sheep. See, that's what's at stake here. This is the invitation. This is the call to not just hear an interesting sermon, but to accept it as a way of life. And so he's going to put it right here. This is what's at stake. He's going to outline two, the final, the, the, the choices, the wise choice, which is a secure foundation in Christ, and the foolish choice, which is a shaky foundation in self. Look at verse 24 and 25. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. He describes a man who was building a foundation. Building a foundation is hard work. It's not glamorous. It's not often exciting. In fact, it never even comes to mind until it's proven under crisis. We're just about to complete this, uh, this 54,000 square foot building. I didn't think we'd ever get past the foundation stage. It took forever to get a foundation, to dig deep, to lay all the, the, the framework, to pour the concrete, to do it. But if we hadn't gotten that right, you wouldn't be safe to walk into no matter how shiny and new the rest of the building looked. The foundation is not glamorous, but it's critical. It's, it's, it, 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 it's the, the key to success. Jesus wants us to see that a life sculpted on the model of the Sermon on the Mount is hard work. But when the crisis comes, the foundation of a Christian's life holds. It's during crisis that we recognize what God has already done in us. And frankly, when the crisis comes, it's too late to begin building the base. I had somebody come to me one time in my first church, and uh, they wanted me to do something as the pastor. And I said, "Hey, wh why don't you why don't you attend church? I've never I've been pastor here for a while. I've never even seen you in church." And she said, "Well, we we we're busy." And she said, "Honestly, we just don't have a need for church right now. But but one of these days, if we need the church, we'll be back." And I said, "Well." Uh, you know, I hate to break it to you, but, but here's, that's not the way it works. Because by the time you need the church, there's nothing to come back to. You don't have relationships. You're not a part of the body. You're not, you're not in community. There's nothing for you to come back to except to, to come with your hat in hand and, and beg for somebody to show mercy and help you out in some way. But that's not the way it was designed to be. The parallel to this story is in Luke chapter 6, and in that passage, it says that the builder dug deep, but the Greek is written in such a way that it emphasizes it. It literally means he dug deep and he kept digging deep. He refused to build until he had struck rock. The rock receives all the credit for sustaining the house during the storm. The, the rain came, the torrent fell, the house was already well built. That gives us a sense of urgency to get on with the task of building a Christian life. We can't wait until the crisis comes to start coming to church and reading the Bible. But there's nothing about the building of the structure that gets the credit. It's the rock that made it strong. 
But then he gives us the other option. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and its collapse was great. This builder was just as skilled as the first builder. The house was just as nice. The only difference between security and total destruction was the foundation. In fact, it says, it says in, at the end of that, and its collapse was great. I, I like uh, other translations. It says, and great was its fall. The Greek describes a dramatic collapse. You ever seen those videos on YouTube of, uh, of um, uh, you know, the, the mudslides in California and, and the house is right there. It's beautiful, multi-million dollar home. And you just watch it and just, whoosh, and the whole thing just slides down the mountain and it's just rubble. Great was its collapse. Jesus says, you don't have to follow this life that I'm offering you, but let me tell you, you're living your life without a rock foundation. And if you do that, one of these days, the storm is going to come and great dramatic, awe-inspiring will be the collapse of the unfounded life. You see, this is the problem that we call self-delusion because there's no doubt that the second builder was proud of his effort. He was probably content with the marvelous structure that he had built but I'm afraid there are church members in churches all across this country that have the appearance of outward respectability. They may be noted for their religious activities, but without a sure foundation established personally with Jesus Christ in the quiet places of life, there is probably a fall in their future. I heard a pastor one time say, a counterfeit bill, a counterfeit $100 bill, while it's in circulation, it might do a lot of good. It might be useful. It might create a lot of opportunities. It might benefit a lot of people. But eventually, that counterfeit bill is going to make its way back to the bank, and it's going to be exposed as a fraud. See, we have this idea that, well, you know, that guy at work, he's, he's the nicest guy at my workplace. He's respectable, and he, he's not much of a churchgoer. In fact, I don't think he's ever been to church, but, but, you know, you couldn't find a nicer guy. Yeah, I'm not saying that lost people can't do some good along the way, but like a counterfeit bill, they may be in circulation. They may be, they may be doing stuff that helps out other people, but one of these days, they come back to the bank, and they're going to be exposed. And Jesus says, I, I don't know you. I've never known you. You're on a different path because you went in a different gate. You're a different kind of tree producing a different kind of fruit. And there's a different destination altogether for you. Hmm. We used to sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand. Remember how the rest of it goes? All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The Sermon on the Mount is applied practically only in the life of a person who is absolutely founded upon Jesus Christ. 
He must be not just our partner. He must be the source of the crucified life playing out through us. Jesus absolutely rejects the role of Sunday buddy or weekend acquaintance. This life is all or nothing. One of my favorite documents from the ancient church, I've read this to you before, but it's worth worth revisiting. It's called A Letter to Diognetus. It was written in the second century A.D., and it's not written by a Christian, but it's written by somebody who is observing Christians and pondering how different they are. Let me just share this with you. In this letter, he's writing to a man named Diognetus. We don't know who that is, and we don't know the, the author of the letter, but the, the topic is, uh, are the Christians that they're, they're discussing. He said, "'For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food, and the other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, they suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but they seem citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, but seem to gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, and yet they are cleared. They are mocked, but they bless in return. They are treated outrageously, and yet behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, but when punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks, yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of the world. The soul is in the body, but is not of the body. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. To live the life of an authentic disciple the basic mode of transportation that Jesus outlines in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is to live a life 
so distinctive in the way we relate to the people around us that they recognize, even when they can't explain, they recognize that we are not like anyone they've ever encountered before. Don't you know that's exactly what God's plan was in saving us, gifting us, and leaving us here for a time to be examples of the holiness of our Father, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, pleading with men to be made right with God. The Christian life is not church attendance and busy work. The Christian life is the Sermon on the Mount writ large in the everyday circles of influence that we walk in. When we look like Jesus, the world notices. And that is the point of your life and mine. Father, thank you so much. We want to be that example of the crucified life on display to people who watch us so that in seeing us, they will be drawn not to us, but to the Christ who lives in us. Lord, let us find our way back to the Sermon on the Mount again and again to ponder these teachings so that we see exactly the profile of who it is that you are making us to be, trusting that your word is true, and that one day we will see Jesus as he is because we will be like him. Let it be so, Father, even now in this life, in this place, in this day, among this people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.